Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 11. And if you did not receive one of the handouts for today, just raise your hand and um, Cynthia can get one of those to you. And that will help you follow along with today's message. We're in Isaiah chapter 11 today as we continue our time during Advent. As we celebrate the coming of Christ the first time and prepare our hearts for his second coming. And today we are in Isaiah chapter 11. Now before we read Isaiah 11 um, and focus on this passage, it would be helpful for me to give you some background of of what has happened in Isaiah chapter 10, all right? Um, Because there's going to be talk here of stumps and roots, and we need to know what in the world Isaiah is talking about. So I just want to draw your attention to Isaiah 10 quickly. Um, God has pronounced judgment on the nation of Israel, and he compares Israel to a forest. And the way he's going to cut them down is by using the axe of the nation of Assyria. And so Isaiah chapter 10 is actually a pronouncement of judgment on Israel and Assyria. And the reason he judges Israel is because they are wicked and they have committed idolatry and wickedness and they haven't repented. Now the reason he judges Assyria is because Assyria gets proud and thinks that it's because of their mighty power that they have cut Israel down and because of their pride he's going to judge Assyria as well. And so look at verse 5 of Isaiah 10. He says, O Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him. That godless nation is Israel. I'm sending him against a godless nation. Against the people of my wrath I command him. To take spoil and seize plunder. And to tread them down like the mire of the streets. And so that's what Assyria has come to do. God sends Assyria to judge Israel. And Assyria becomes proud. Now I want you to see what happens with what's left of of Israel. Go to verse 20 of Isaiah 10. It says, in that day, the remnant, those remaining of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. So there's going to be a remnant of people that are left after Israel is judged. Now skip down to verse 33 of Isaiah 10, and that's going to lead us into Isaiah 11. Here's what God's going to do to Israel. Verse 33. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bowels with terrifying power. All right, let me say that another way. He's going to chop down the trees of Israel with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. So that, the main picture I want you to see in Isaiah 10 is God's judgment of Israel and like, like a lumberjack with the axe of Assyria in his hand, he lops down the forest of Israel so that all you see as you look out at the forest of Israel are stumps. 
No life, just stumps. And then we get to chapter 11, and there's hope. This is our passage for today, chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. And faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the viper's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This morning we want to talk about the shoot from Jesse's stump. That shoot from Jesse's stump. Let's pray together. Father, would you teach us from your word today as we prepare our hearts for you coming again. Lord, we look back on what you have done in history You sent your son, Jesus Christ, to save us from your judgment and your wrath and your condemnation. You have given us great joy. You have brought peace to the earth. And for that we say thank you. Father, we look forward into history and we see that you are coming again. That there will arise a shoot from the stump of Jesse who will be an eternal king who will rule forever and and ever. And to that kingdom there will be no end. And for that day we say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. And prepare us for that day. Help us to be people of righteousness and truth. Prepare us as we hear from your word today. Speak to us. I pray that this message would not be with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that our faith will not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of Almighty God. Accomplish your purpose through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. As we studied last week, uh, we, we see that studying prophecy sometimes is a challenge, right? Because you're not only trying to figure out what is the prophet talking about, but when is the prophet talking about it, right? And so as we read Isaiah 10 and Isaiah 11, what's going on? Right? We've read this, but God is using the kingdom of Assyria to destroy Israel because of her sinfulness. And however, at the same time, God is pronouncing judgment on the Assyrians for their pride and their arrogance. And so God is going to cut down Israel like a forest. 
But he's also going to destroy the axe in his hand, which is the king of Assyria. And so what is typical of the prophets, all the prophets, and what is so mystifying to us is that chapter 10 flows into chapter 11 seamlessly. As if chapter 10 happens on Monday and what happens on chapter 11 happens on a Tuesday. So just remember that when this was written, there were no chapter divisions. There were no verse numbers next to the scripture. It was just all one reading. So I want you to read one more time with me verse 34 of chapter 10. And let's let that read into chapter 11 verse 1. Ready? And just pretend that there's no chapter divisions. Hear this from the prophet. Verse 34, God will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. There's not the slightest indication of when that's going to happen, right? It could be 700 years. Or 2,700 years, right? Here we are today, and we're still kind of watching and waiting for this. And so while I was in seminary and I was starting to learn how to study the prophets, one of the really helpful things that I was taught was the way that the prophets look at the future. It's kind of like the way that you and I look at a mountain range. For example, my my sister, um, Jennifer, lived in... Colorado for several years and we would on occasion go out to visit them and she lived in Colorado Springs so we're right there with the Air Force you're right there in the middle of the mountains Colorado Springs is it's really really neat it's a really neat town that's kind of placed in the middle of this mountain range that surrounds it on all sides and from downtown Colorado Springs you can see Pikes Peak Pikes Peak was like the, t- the place where the, the girl wrote the words, uh, America the Beautiful, right? Those amber waves of grain that she was writing about was from Pikes Peak, this huge mountain. And you can see it from downtown Colorado Springs. But when you go to visit Pikes Peak, it's not just one mountain. You realize as you go there by car or you start to hike there or you- like we rode the train to the top. It's not just one mountain. That mountain is, is actually surrounded by multiple mountain ranges. And so you, you can't see it from a distance, but as you get closer and as you look behind, you notice that there's distance between these mountains and there is this series of ever higher ridges with valleys in between. Several of them, over and over and over again. And what we call that in theology and in study of the prophets is the prophetic perspective. So from where Isaiah stood, God granted him to see the pike's peak of the future. To see the Messiah coming in his glorious reign in the new kingdom. But he also saw a bunch of other mountains too. And so from his perspective, he can't really see everything in the proper time. He just sees that it's going to happen. So he sees these near near ridges of this King Sennacherib's comings earlier in Isaiah. And he doesn't know exactly when they're going to happen. Some of them are very near. Some of them are very distant. But beyond that, there were other events that he saw on Pike's Peak with no clear idea of how distant they were. And so repeatedly in the prophetic books as we study Isaiah and as you read through the prophets, you're going to see them prophesying imminent near attack 
or deliverance from an enemy, and the next moment you read about an event in the distant future with no indication of how much time is in between. So that's why you get this immediate judgment of Israel in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 34. And then you get to verse 11, and it's like 2,000 or 2,700 years before the Messiah comes out of that stump. Does that make sense? So we're looking at it. These are mountain ranges. Now the Apostle Peter said this, a similar thing in 1 Peter 1, verses 10 and 11. He said, concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In other words, when the Spirit moved the prophets to write, when he moved Isaiah to write about this future Messiah, this suffering servant, He did not answer all the questions about how the pieces fit together. Which means as we read the prophets, not all of our questions are going to be answered either. So if you have questions about when all of this is going to happen, I don't know. God hasn't revealed everything to me, believe it or not. But we do have some advantages over the prophets, right? We have something that Isaiah did not have, and that's hindsight. right? We get to look at things from from behind, which may sound strange since the prophets were inspired by God and we are not inspired. But what we do have that the prophets did not, we have all the prophets so we can compare them with each other. We also have the New Testament use of the prophecies and we have the perspective of 2,700 years to see what has happened. And so strange as it may seem, we understand the timing and the relationships of some things more clearly than they did. All right, and so our goal here at Three Rivers is not to argue over eschatology. Right? That's a big word that means study of the end times. All right? We've all got our different views, and, and that's okay. People may ask me what I believe sometimes. You may have a question after church. Hey, what are, are you like pre-trib, post-trib, amillennial? Like, where are you at on that? And you're not going to get an answer from me, partly because I have no idea. Second of all, um, I'm going to give you a different answer depending on what day of the week it is. One day I may be this, and the next day I'm like, well, maybe I'm this. But I usually just tell people I'm either pan-millennial, it's all just going to pan out in the end, right? Or I'm pro-millennial. Like, I'm for it, man. I'm pro-Jesus coming back, right? So I don't know. I just know. So I don't know the answers to those questions. And as a matter of fact, we we don't make a big deal about each other's views of the end times here at this church. It's not even on our, our statement of beliefs on the website, which I'm actually, I actually think is a good thing. But what we all can agree on as we begin this passage is that Christ is coming again. Amen? Can we all just say amen to that? Jesus is coming again. And because his return could come at any time, we need to be ready and we need to continue to preach the gospel to every nation until his return. So I'm not going to look up into the skies and wonder when Jesus is coming back and, and just fix my eyes on that and that's all I focus on. We've got work to do. And if we only focus on when Jesus is coming back and we don't do what he told us to do in the meantime, then we're disobedient, right? And so what Isaiah 11 does is it's going to give us a picture and help us to prepare for when he does come back, right? So let me just give you a couple of big ideas in your notes of dealing with Advent prophecy, okay? The first thing we need to know is that the kingdom of God has come in part. The kingdom has come in part, It's partly here, right? When Jesus came, he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The time is now fulfilled. Repent of your sins and believe the gospel. 
So there was a sense in which God's kingdom was ushered in with with the coming of Jesus and with his death and his resurrection. And he has ushered in the kingdom of God. So there's a sense in which the kingdom has come in part. But we also understand that the kingdom will come one day in fullness. The kingdom will come in fullness during the second coming of Christ when he establishes his kingdom fully on the earth. And we're going to get a picture of what that's going to look like today. So Three Rivers, one day we will see the entire mountain range. We get to see everything. And it will all make sense. But until then, our view of the prophetic mountain range may differ. But we can all agree that we see the Pike's Peak of Christ's return. He is coming again. And we need to prepare ourselves. Right? So let's look and see what will this rain look like. What is, what is this all about? Okay? So three main points of this passage. Three main sections. The first one is in verses 1 through 5. And here we see that the Messiah will reign in his kingdom, in righteousness by the power of the Spirit of the Lord. All right? Let's read this again, verses 1 through 5. It says, There shall come forth a shoot, or a branch, from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Let's stop right there, just in verse 1. What do we see here about, about this future Messiah? We're told that it will, he will come like a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, who was Jesse? Jesse was the, the father of David, right? King David. And so the first thing that we see about this future king is that the Messiah will be a, I'm going to teach you a new word here, a Davidic king. There's the word, all right? It's a word in theology that means he's, he's going to be the descendant of David. He, he, he's going to be a king in the line, in the family line of David. This was one of the big covenants in the Bible that was made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And listen to these two verses that God promised to David. God told David, when your days are fulfilled... And you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So the Davidic king is going to be an eternal king, a king who rules forever. And David did not know what that meant. And Isaiah didn't really understand what that meant. All we knew is that this, this stump of Jesse, the family of Jesse, is going to, there's going to come a shoot out of him, and out of him will be the Messiah. This shoot will be the one who reigns. All right, so there's some other things we see here about this that's implied. Why did he not say out of David? Why didn't he say out of the stump of David? He says Jesse for a reason. And the reason he does this is because the stump of Jesse implies humble beginnings. Bible trivia for you, yes or no question, not a trick question, was Jesse a king? No, right? And by the way, neither was David at first, right? Where did David begin? In the fields, right? He was a, he was a shepherd, and Jesse was just an average guy. And it was one of Jesse's sons that would be 
the king that God chose? Was it the tallest king? Or was it the tallest son that he had? Was it the oldest son that he had? Was it the strongest son that he had? No, it was the, the runt, right? David, the one that he didn't even think to call in with all the other brothers when Samuel was choosing the king. So here we see that he's going to come from the stump of Jesse, implying that this Messiah will begin with humble beginnings the same way that Jesse did. Sound familiar, right? Of a king who was born in a stable, in Bethlehem, with no fanfare. He did not begin as a king. This root of Jesse will have humble beginnings. But we're also told that it will come from the stump. There is a stump, and this implies a holy remnant of people. There will be a people that will believe, even though most of Israel has turned aside and they have fallen under God's judgment, the shoot from this stump will reign over God's people, and there will be a remnant of people who believe. Jeremiah 23 has this prophecy about this branch. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. All right, so we see that this shoot, this Messiah is going to come forth like a little twig, a little branch coming out of the stump of Jesse with humble beginnings to rule over his people. He will be a descendant of David. What else do we see about this Messiah? Verse 2, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So not only will this Messiah be a Davidic king, the second thing we see here is that this Messiah will reign by God's spirit. He's going to be spirit-filled. He's going to reign by God's spirit. You remember in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus almost gets killed early, when he stands up in the synagogue and he reads, Luke, he reads from Isaiah 61 verse 1, and he says... Isaiah 61, which Jesus read in the synagogue. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound. And Jesus stands up and says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. That the Spirit of the Lord would come on the Messiah and Jesus says, I'm here, it's me. And we see this being prophesied in Isaiah 11 that the Messiah would be filled with the Spirit. And there's some, you see these, uh, in, in the Hebrew, they, they give these lines with two different things that talk about his, lane, so his reign. So there's these three pairs of two words. You'll see that? So the Spirit, he will have the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Those go together, and each of those lines talk about an aspect of his reign. So in verse 2, it says that he will have the spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Holy Spirit will give him a spirit of wisdom and understanding. So what does that mean? That means that the Spirit will empower him for leadership. For leadership. He'll have wisdom and understanding that will help him these words, spirit and understanding, or wisdom and understanding, refer to his judicial abilities. He's going to serve as a judge. 
And so we're reminded here of the prayer of Solomon. Right? My, my parents always taught me about this prayer of Solomon, that when Solomon was asked by the Lord, Solomon, I'll give you anything that you want. What do you want? I'll give you anything. You want riches? You want, you want a big kingdom? I'll give it all to you. What do you want? And what did Solomon ask for? Give me wisdom, that I might rule with a spirit of wisdom. And so we're reminded here of, of this, but... As wise as Solomon was in all of his rule, in all of its best, the very best that Solomon had to offer as the wisest man that ever lived, it will be a shadow of the coming reign of the Messiah. All right, and so we look at these two words closely. Wisdom is practical, ethical, moral skillfulness. The, the ability to act within certain circumstances so that the results are productive and beneficial to the community. This guy has wisdom. He just makes good decisions. And then understanding or discernment refers to the ability to distinguish or decide between things. He just knows how to make the right decision. He's a good leader. And so the Spirit empowers him for leadership. The second line of words is the Spirit of counsel and might. So the Spirit's going to empower him for leadership, but also empower him to execute his plans. Not only is he going to make good plans, but he's also going to have the power to actually do it. This assures us that this king will need no advisors. He's going to make the right plans, and he's going to have the power to carry them out. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 9, a very familiar passage for us, we're told that this Messiah will be a wonder of a counselor. He's going to be an amazing counselor. He's going to be the mighty God. And so this king will make all the plans and he's going to fulfill them. And in order for him to do that, he has to be the mighty God. The fullness of the Spirit is going to empower him to do this. So when Jesus plans to do something, he's going to get his work done. He's going to have the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might. And this third line, we're told that he has the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The spirit will empower him for holiness. This is going to be a holy king who has no moral failings, nothing in his closet, no skeletons to hide. This describes the Messiah as one who is rightly related to God. Right? There can be no knowledge of the Lord without right action. And the fear of the Lord means that he will have no idolatry, no sin, no rebellious acts. There will only be pure religion as it was intended. This Messiah will show that in every act he is always accountable to God. He'll say things like, I don't, the only thing that I speak is what I hear from my Father in heaven. He will only do that which pleases his father. He will tell his parents early in his childhood that I have to be about my father's business. Like none before him, this king will share in God's ability through the Spirit. And so here we finally see the prophecy of Emmanuel beginning to unfold. There will be one who truly will be God with us. And how is he going to reign? Let's look at verse, verse 3. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. How is he going to lead this Messiah? He will reign in righteousness. 
righteousness, uprightness, faithfulness will characterize his reign. And if you ever look at the political situations of our own country, or if you just look in history at all, the kings who have abused power, all of those in authority who have abused the rule of law, they have abused their position. And it makes you groan and moan, saying if only there was a righteous king. That groaning is good. That groaning comes from a desire for Jesus to rule, for for someone to rule well in righteousness. We're told here in verse 4 that with righteousness he will judge the poor. He will decide with equity for the meek of the earth. This Messiah will champion the rights of the poor and the needy. He will punish and destroy the wicked. It will enable the Messiah to bring justice to the earth. To be faithful to his word and to his mission and to his people. And the reason he can do this The reason he can do the work of God by himself is because he is God. So what's he going to do? Back to your notes. We're told here that he will defend the weak. He will defend the weak. Verse 4 says that he will decide with equity for the meek of the earth. With righteousness he will judge the poor. He will defend the weak, but we're also told here that he will defeat the wicked. There will be no wickedness in his reign. He will defeat it. Verse 4 says, He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. This echoes of the book of Revelation as Jesus comes and out of his mouth comes a sword, a mouth that is able to speak and to slay those who stand against him. He's going to have the authority to speak and do away with those who stand up against his reign. He will defend the weak. He will defeat the wicked. Look at verse 3 again. Verse 3 says, His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And then it says, He will not judge by what his eyes see, and he will not decide disputes by what his ears hear. Let me, let me give you what that means there in your notes. When it says that he will ju- not judge by what his eyes see, this judge will not judge based on the appearance of others. It's very easy for a judge or a king to look at someone and decide right off the bat if they're going to be merciful or not without actually hearing the case. Sometimes we do the same thing, right? We prejudge people based on how they look. We look at the appearance of others and we just go ahead and decide whether they're innocent or guilty or whether we're going to reach out to them or not. But this judge will not judge based on the appearance of others. And Jesus told this to his disciples in John chapter 7, verse 24. He told his disciples, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And so Jesus has the expectation that as he will judge rightly, he expects us to do the same. He will not judge based on the appearance of others, and he will not judge based on the opinions of others either. He will not judge based on the opinions of others It says he will not decide disputes by what his ears hear. As we read this, it creates this desire that, oh Lord, would you please come 
Please come so we have a king, like in verse 5, so that righteousness will be the belt of his waist, faithfulness the belt of his loins, that everything he does is good and true, and he truly rules well. So that's what his rule will be like. He will be empowered by the Spirit of the Lord. Let's look at the second section, verses 6 through 9, where we see that the Messiah's reign will bring peace to the whole of creation. And we saw hints of this back in Isaiah 2 last week when, when people will start beating their swords into plowshares. They're, they're not just going to exchange their swords for garden tools. They're going to beat their weapons into garden tools because they will need their weapons no more. There will be peace on the earth. Let's read about this piece. Verse 6. This is weird. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. That is a parenting fail right there, right? You didn't notice? Letting your child play over a pit of snakes. But it says the nursing child will play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the viper's den. Here you go. Hey, hey let's just let radical kids go and play next to the, the viper pit we have out here next to the church, Right? Oh yeah, and inside the gate there's a petting zoo with lions and tigers and bears and they're all eating grass along with the cows and the sheep. What? What is going on here? And so you, obviously when you read this you have to think, all right, if that's, there's a lot that needs to change here, right? And so what we see in the Messiah's reign in this new kingdom that he will establish is that the nature of the world will change. Now, if, if we're doing good Bible study, we need to ask the question, is this literal or is it figurative? What does he mean? Or is God really going to change the biological nature of lions so that they stop eating other animals and they start eating grass? Does it literally mean that, that I'm going to let my kids go play in the snake pit? Is that, what he, is that really what it means? And the answer is, maybe, could that might mean what it be what it means it might mean that lions tigers and bears oh my can just go out and play with the cows and the sheep and they're all good friends and the little kid can lead the lion on a leash maybe but i think it goes a little deeper than that maybe but in a figurative sense i think what isaiah is communicating is that the relationship between predator and prey will no longer be be there 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 will no longer be the the one who attacks and the victim, right? There won't be any more victims. Everyone will be on equal ground. There's going to be peace. Does that make sense? So you have the relationship between predator and prey, wolf and the lamb, lion and the cow and the bear, and they all coexist together. God's going to change the nature of things, and that might be... It might be literal. He might let all the animals play together and all be nice to each other. Or it might just mean that the relationship between, in creation is going to be restored to its original intentions before the fall. And so here we have a hint of the gospel reality of the fall being reversed and the curse being reversed. There's a reversal of Adam's rebellion in Genesis chapter 3. 
And so what we see in verse 9, along with this, it says, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How is the nature of the world going to change? There will be no more danger. can let your kids play in the front yard and not have to worry about where they wandered off to. You don't have to go out to Walmart and wonder what's going to happen in the middle of the night or in the parking lot, right? People say I'm afraid to go on a foreign mission trip, but y'all, that's dangerous going to Walmart at midnight. I don't know if y'all been there lately. Okay. There will be no more danger. And we're also told that there's going to be no more destruction. There will be no, they shall not hurt or destroy on my holy mountain. Under the Messiah's reign, there's going to be no more destruction. And goodness knows there's been a lot of destruction in 2016. Between wildfires in Gatlinburg, right, and earthquakes and tsunamis and mass shootings, all of those things, all of the destruction that's going on in our world, be gone because Jesus rules well and the curse will be reversed. Now the question is why? Why will there be peace on the earth? Why will everything change? And the reason everything's going to change is found in verse 9. It says, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. In other words, the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth. And the reason people won't kill each other is because they both know Jesus. And they love Jesus and they're submitted to his rule and his, and his reign and they won't kill each other or hurt one another or prey on each other. Because the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth. Just as the, the waters cover the sea, knowledge of Jesus will be everywhere. And you won't have to go ask people, hey, do you know the Lord? Because everyone will know the Lord in that day. And there will be peace. Now let's look at verse 10, because verse 10 is where the fun happens, all right? Verse 10 says, In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. I told you last week that my preaching prof in seminary said, that before, you read the te- before you preach a text, you need to read it at least 50 times. And if you read it a lot, you start noticing things that you wouldn't notice earlier if you only read it once or twice. little detail here in verse 10, and it's subtle, but it is really cool and really important. In verse 10, what is it that's going to come out of Jesse? Verse 10, did you see the word? In that day, the... Root. Now I want you to think of, get, a, get a stump in your mind and think of where the root is. Now go back to verse 1. What is it that says it's coming out of Jesse? A shoot. A branch. Now branches come on top of the stump. They come after the stump. The root comes before the stump. 
So there is something here that is being communicated about the reign of the Messiah. And I don't think Isaiah even fully understood it when he said in verse 1 that there will be a shoot out of the, root of, out of the stump of Jesse. And then in verse 10, there's going to be the root of Jesse. How can you be the shoot and also be the root? And so here is what we see about this king that we worship today is that Jesus is the eternal king of the nations. The nations of the world will come to the Messiah to find rest in his glory. And the way they'll find rest first is that Jesus is the eternal king of the nations. I'm going to explain what I mean here in case you didn't catch it. If you go to Revelation 22, which you don't have to, but Revelation 22, verse 16, Jesus actually references Isaiah 11. And in verse 16 of Revelation 22, last chapter of the book, last paragraph, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. All right? So, This is good, right? In verse 1, in your notes, in verse 1, Jesus is the shoot of Jesse's stump who comes after Jesse. In time, he was born after Jesse. David was the son of Jesse. Then he gave birth to Solomon. Then you can go read Matthew chapter 1 to get the rest of their family line and their, their family tree. But we see that Jesus was a descendant of David, and that in time, he, was the, he came after the stump. He was born in time after Jesse. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says that not only am I the descendant of David, but I'm also the root of David. I don't just come after David. I come before David. I'm the eternal king. And so in verse 10, Jesus is the root of Jesse's stump who always existed before Jesse. And I promise you, Isaiah probably didn't get all of this while he was writing this. He didn't fully understand it. But Jesus said this in John chapter 8, verse 58, when he told when he told his disciples, I truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham existed, I am. I was there. He was making a claim to be God. And so, y'all, I've been waiting on this. I've been waiting on this part of the notes all day long. Ready? This is how Jesus stumped the Pharisees about his own identity. Been waiting on it all day, all week, y'all. This is how Jesus stumped the Pharisees with a question. And what was the question? In Matthew 22, verse 45, Jesus quotes Psalm 110 and then asks the Pharisees the question. He said, guys, if David calls the Messiah Lord, how is David also his son? And the Pharisees were looking around like, I don't know. In Psalm 110, how is it that David calls him Lord? If David calls him Lord, how is he also his son? And so what we see here is that in verse 1, Jesus is the shoot coming out of Jesse as the descendant, the king in the Davidic line, but he's also the pre-existent God from pre-existent eternity who preceded Jesse and came before Jesse and who rules all things well. So here's what we see in your notes. Follow along. Jesus is the source and the offspring of Jesse. He's the root and he's the shoot. Right? He is the source of Jesse, he's the one that came before, and he is also the offspring of Jesse, who came after him. Jesus is the source and the offspring of Jesse, and here, 
Here we also see that Jesus is the father and the son of David. He's the father and the son of David. He's the father of David because he existed long before David ever came along. And he's also the son of David because he was born 2,000 years after David as the, in the Davidic line behind David in Bethlehem. And what we ultimately see here is that Jesus is the beginning and the end of all things. It seems like he said that before, right? Right in Revelation 22, verse 13, that whole Alpha Omega business. He meant that. I'm Alpha and Omega. I am first and the last. I am beginning and the end. When every other king is off of his throne and I take my rightful place as king of the nations, I was already king of the nations before they ever came along and I will always be king of the nations after they're long gone. I am always king before and after, first, last, Alpha, Omega, beginning and end. Jesus does not begin when the beginning began he began the beginning and by the way he will also end the ending he did not start when started got start he started start right bad grammar good theology right this is the Jesus we're talking about this is the one at advent that we are waiting on the one who is not only coming to us but the one who has always come before us he has always been watching over us he's always been ruling well he's still ruling well and he will always rule well in his kingdom And so we trust ourselves to Jesus. We give ourselves to him. And what we see in verse 10, not only is he the root of Jesse, but his resting place will be glorious. And if we rest in him and if we trust in him, the glory of Jesus will be our final home. It is that glory that we're waiting on, that we're coming to, that we're approaching. The glory of Jesus is our final home. And if Jesus is our king, that means that you and I are citizens of his kingdom. So what do we do with this? How do do we apply this? This passage was clearly laid out for the people of Israel as the hope for people who were troubled by wicked rulers and endless wars. And so as in Isaiah's day, so now, today, the people of God and we here at Three Rivers can be encouraged that there is a glorious future, that the world will one day see the day of redemption, and that the oppressed and the weak will one day be delivered, and that the oppressors will be either destroyed or changed. And so what this does is this helps us to live above the curse today. We still live in a cursed world broken by the fall. But because we know this about our king, because we know this about Jesus, we live above the curse. We fix our eyes on the hope of glory. And this would have been an evangelistic message in Isaiah's day as well. There is not a ghost of a chance for safety or salvation for this fallen world in anyone except for the Messiah who is to come. So if there's any other thing to be said here, it is repent and believe the gospel. Do not fall under the wrath of this king who is to come. There's no better time for people to believe the gospel and to to become Christians than now. Are you trusting in Jesus today? And yet, 
besides being a message of comfort or warning that we need to declare, this passage can be applied to our spiritual life. So as in the last few minutes, just want to apply this passage to us. In other words, those who believe in Christ become subjects of the king. We are kingdom citizens, which means that we share in the ministry of Jesus and we receive benefits from him as our king. If Jesus is king, that means we're supposed to copy him and to emulate him. And so we're going to make three specific applications for us Christians who are trying to be like our king. So how can we be like our king today? First, our purpose. How do we do this? First, let's yield ourselves to the spirit of our king. Let's yield ourselves and be controlled by the Holy Spirit, the same spirit who ruled over Jesus, who led Jesus, the same spirit that empowered the ministry of Jesus. Let's yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit this time. This is based on the fact that the Messiah will have the Spirit of God working in and through him. And we know that when Jesus returned to heaven, he sent that same spirit to continue what he began. We've been studying it in the book of Acts. And so Christians, we have been given the same spirit that governs and controls our king. And that Holy Spirit can produce wisdom and might and the fear of the Lord in us. So be Be filled with the Spirit today. Get the junk out of your life that is filling up your heart and and be filled with the Spirit. Seek the Spirit. Seek the filling. Pray for God to fill you fresh and anew at the end of this year as we approach the new year to come. Second, we're told that this king will rule in righteousness. And so, church, let's promote the righteousness and truth of our king When you read Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14, what are we told to put on as part of spiritual armor? The belt of truth. Well, we're not the only ones wearing that truth. That's what our king wears. Verse 5 says, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, faithfulness the belt of his loins. That means we need to be people of truth. We don't stretch the truth. We do things we say we're going to do. We keep our word. We don't say things to try to make ourselves look better than we really are. We need to be moved towards righteousness. We promote righteousness wherever we are. Third, we're told in verse 10, that this root of Jesse will stand as a signal for the peoples, a lighthouse. And the nations will come to him and find rest in him. And so Three Rivers, during this Advent season, let's lift up the gospel signal of our king. Let's promote this king as the rest for the nations. Paul uses this passage in Romans 15, verse 12. He actually quotes this verse as the basis for missions. That the Messiah is the signal for the nations to come to him to find rest. And if we are faithful citizens of the king, that's what we're doing. We're lifting up Christ. We want to lift him up today. We want to lift up Jesus and make much of him. Not only in this church service, but in our lives. In how we spend our money, in how we speak, in how we live. Everything we do, we're lifting up the king. 
we're talking about this today in our, our elders meeting this morning. Um, one of the things we want to do here is to promote evangelism and, and outreach in our community. And I think the cultural tendency for our church is the way we do that is by programs. So we look at a need in our church and we say, well, what, we need to start some program or some outreach ministry to go reach out to people. And I, I, I default to that. I start asking, well, we need to reach out to people, so what do we do? What can we start? When in reality, the way we do that is by each individual Christian being salt and light in their community, engaging the domain that God has given you. And here's what that means. It means a couple of things. It first means that you're discipling people. I ask the question a lot of times, who are your men? How are your men? I'd ask every man in this room, how are your men today? And if you don't know how your men, or if you don't know who are your men, you can't know how your men are, right? How are the men in your life, the men that you are going to invest in and make disciples of and teach them and lead them? I got guys that I meet with every Thursday morning. Austin's one of them. We meet, we pray together, we talk together, we eat breakfast together. It's good, right? Because I'm not going to be here forever. I got to invest in the future. I got men in my life, and I need more. I want a disciple. So, men, how are your men? Make disciples. Ladies, how are your women? Right? Same thing's true for you. Are you investing in, in other people? Are you making disciples? So that's one way we reach out. But the second way is more for evangelism in the lost. And that doesn't mean that we just ride up in our bicycles like Mormons and just throw, you know, try to get people converted and then leave. Let me, let me give you some, this, hopefully this is an encouragement to you. Evangelism can just start with you making friends with someone who's not a Christian with no agenda. Not as a project, but just saying, you know what? I want to get to know you. I want you to come to my house. I want you to eat dinner with me during Thanksgiving, Christmas. I want you to come watch a movie with me. Let's go hang out. And listen, if you never become a Christian, I still love you. And I'm still going to pray for you, and I still care about you. And let our evangelism come out of relationships with others, not just as projects, right? Let that be an encouragement. Look at the people in your life, not just the Christians that you can disciple, but the non-Christians that you can befriend. Sometimes we're afraid to be friends with non-Christians because we think it's going to somehow stain us. No, that's the very thing Jesus was accused of when he was here, that he ate with drunkards and sinners. And so rather than, rather than just promote some evangelistic program, let's just... Let's just be salt and light and do what Jesus told us to do and make friends with non-Christians and invite them to church and invite them to your radical life group. Invite them to dinner with you and befriend them. And as they watch you in your life and they see how you talk to your family, that means you got to be on your game, right? Not hypocrites, but you just you got to live the Christian life, be filled with the Spirit. They're going to watch how you talk to your family. They're going to watch how you pray together. They're going to watch how you talk to your children, watch how you talk to your, your, your parents, your family. They're going to watch you, and they're going to say, something's different about you, and I want that. This is the way that we lift up the gospel of our King. We show that we're citizens of another kingdom and that He has changed us. We want to bring other people into this kingdom. So that's our purpose. But we also have a prayer we're praying, right? Our prayer is simple. Come, Lord Jesus, right? Just come. Come quickly. Come. 
Come, Lord, establish your reign on the earth. Fulfill your word. Do what you've said you're going to do. And rule well. I'll finish with this. What is the destiny? What is the destiny of this shoot? What is the destiny of this God-man? Isaiah 11 verse 10 says, In that day the root of Jesse will stand as a signal for the peoples, and of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glory. At the end of time, church, when all his work and all his judgment and salvation is done, Jesus will enter his rest. He will enter his final home, and one word will describe him, and one word will describe that place, and it will be glory. This glory is the sum of all the beauties of his person, all of his wisdom, all of his understanding, his counsel, his might, his delight and righteousness and mercy. All of those things will be summed up in one word, glory. And this glory is the sum of all of his work gathered together, the nations gathered, Israel restored, the curse removed, new heaven, new earth, no harm, no destruction anymore, no more tears, no more death. Death loses its sting. Hell loses its victory. The grave loses its grasp on us. This is his resting place. Its name will be glory and he will be the very center of that glory. And all of us who come to him as the signal, all of us who come to him, every sorrow will be passed and every joy imaginable will be satisfied in him. We will be home. Amen? Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we worship you today. Advent is an exciting time for us as your people to look forward to your glorious reign and our glorious future in your kingdom. But until that day, we are agents of the kingdom. We are citizens of your kingdom. This is not home for us. We long for being there while we're still here. And while we're still here, Father, use us as salt in a tasteless society. Use us as light in a dark world. Use us as yeast to leaven the dough, to create change in this world, and to advance your kingdom priorities. Father, use each and every one of us and fill us with your Holy Spirit. Make us people, men and women of righteousness and truth, so that when people see us, they notice a difference, and they're drawn to us. And ultimately drawn to you. Jesus, you are the eternal king. You far precede me. You were here long before me. You will be king long after I'm gone. This is your kingdom. And we exalt you today. We lift you up as the only one who can save the nations. The only one who will draw all peoples to himself. We lift you up today. And we exalt you and glorify you and magnify your name. And today we say, be exalted, Jesus. Be glorified in our midst. Let us now sing in spirit and truth to our king as citizens of this kingdom. Let us worship you today and bring you much glory as you bring us much joy. In Jesus' name, amen.